0: If I drown, young men are putting themselves six feet in the ground. Because all this damn country does is keep on kicking them down. Lord, it's a damn shame what the world's gotten to. For people like me, people like you. Wish I could just wake up and it not be true. But it is, All oh, it is, living in.
1: Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by our host and star of this show, Jerry Truppiano. This is On the Record with Jerry Trupiano. And this is Hall of Fame week on Real Voices of the Game. we got another special guest today, tremendous guest. I wish I could have taped the pre-show conversation. It was worth, definitely worthy of a show. But uh, before we get to Jerry and our guest, I want to just say thank you to two groups of people. First, our audience, 55,000 and climbing. Last year, at this point in time, we were at 4,000 subscribers. So we are, we are catching on here, Jerry. Uh, thank you for your support. We are grassroots MLB front offices now, 74 countries we're listening to in. And because of you guys, we are now a major part of iHeartRadio's powerful podcast network. Make sure you give this show five stars afterwards and write some nice notes under it, because just like Major League Baseball, we do battle the analytics of the podcast world as well. Now to our, 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 our sponsor, I should say. Uh, first sponsor here that, that we've taken on with our show, Blackout Coffee. In honor of our fans, Blackout Coffee is offering all of our fans if they use the code David Capital D A V I D twenty on checkout, they're going to give you twenty percent off your first purchase there, and they're going to give our fans in perpetuity fifteen percent off as long as they stay partners with us. So we're very excited to have them on. Their slogan, Jerry, is "Be awake, not woke." So um, I played that that song in the beginning in honor of that. So, but. Uh, With that, very excited to have our guest today. I didn't realize how much he and I had in common. Uh, We learned a little bit more before the show, but uh, I'll turn it over to you now and welcome our special Hall of Fame guest today.
2: All right. Thank you, Dave D'Agostino, the hardest working man in the business, I think, right now. Our guest today, I'm honored to have with us, Hall of Fame basketball coach, and like Dave, former basketball coach, former minor league ball player, baseball player, Tom Penders. Tom, how are you?
0: I'm doing great, Jerry, and it's a pleasure to be on with you and Dave.
2: Listen, I tell you what, now, now for those, everybody's familiar with Tom Penders, coach, of the. I've I met him when he's coach at the University of Texas, he's coached at the University of Houston, let's see, coached at Rhode Island, George Washington, Columbia, Fordham, Tufts. Did I miss anybody?
0: I don't think so. I think you hit him. Seven different universities, and... I, we had a reunion of my Tufts 1973 team, which is in the New England Hall of Fame. And, uh, you know, it's a lot of those guys, most of them are in their 70s now. Uh, I was only five years older than the captain of that team uh, back in 1971, 72 was my first year. So I've got all kinds of uh, reunions and families, Dean Smith was famous for talking about family and staying in touch with his former players uh it's It's not easy in some cases uh players will never call you because you didn't play them enough minutes or they think that you didn't like them and in most cases uh you know those kids those guys go on to become very close friends and Uh, You know, I've got a lot of former players that call on a regular basis, and sometimes I'll just call them uh, because it is a family. You go through four years together, and I look back on my own career at UConn as a basketball, baseball player. You know, my teammates, you know, we're like brothers. We had great teams, uh, and if you win and have success, uh, you know, you stay together. It, it's a happy time. It's something that you, you know, you have to, you, you know, each other really well because you see each other after tough defeats. Uh, you practice the next day. You you got to get back up for the next game, and uh, you know it, it's it's a unique way of making a living. It's not the uh, most secure business in the world. <laughs> you know, they change the college president. Or athletic director, and all of a sudden, and they don't have an idea of what you did or how you turned a program around, uh, and they can't figure out why you're not in the final four. Uh, It's just the the nature of the business. So I I kept moving. I basically stayed ahead of the posse before it formed in my career. I had seven different universities where I coached.
2: That's a go, good way to put it. And since you mentioned Dean Smith, a legend, since you mentioned family, we lost a legend. We lost a member of the basketball family yesterday. What kind of association, if any, did you have with Bobby Knight?
0: I was very fortunate, Jerry. Uh, I'm still sad today. Uh, I lost a great friend as a very young coach at Columbia University. We played his undefeated 1975-76 national championship team, which went undefeated, and to this day, I think was the the greatest basketball team uh, ever in college basketball. Uh, We developed a relationship from that game, and leading up to the game, from the press conferences we had, the week of that game, it was for the holiday festival in New York. I was in my second year at Columbia. We didn't have a very good team it was because we couldn't play freshmen. And in my first year, when I, I mean, when I first got the job in April uh, of 1974, I wasn't allowed to recruit because the deadline for admissions in Ivy League was April 1st. So I, had, I was stuck with whoever... Ever, uh, was coming in that year, so my first recruited class didn't come in until my second year, and they had to play freshman ball. So I didn't have a real good team. I think we had 11 sophomores and a couple of seniors, and uh, we're playing number one, and it was at Madison Square Garden, and we all listened in to each other on a press conference. The eight teams that were there, and I, I had some fun with it and and uh Bob Knight loved it. And before we even played, he spent a, a minute or two with me uh down near my bench uh and telling me how much he appreciated my comments and how hard he laughed. And you know, later on in life, um, you know, we we met many, many times, usually outside of games. Uh, We didn't play each other. I think we played twice in my career against each other. He didn't really like playing against me because we became friends. I spent an entire week out at his house, staying at his house, uh, the first week of practice in the Ivy League. We didn't start until October 22nd. Everybody else in the country started on October 15th, and he invited me to come out there, watched them practice in 1977 uh, which was the year after or actually it was still 76 but before his 76 77 team um, so i went out and spent that week with him i thought i was going to stay in a marriott out there uh, near campus in bloomington but his assistant bob donawall picked me up at the airport and drove me to a residential area, and I said, where are we going? He said, we're going to stop by Coach's house. So I said, great. And, you know, he gets out of the car, I get out of the car, and he said, where's your luggage? I said, I put it in the trunk. He said, "Uh, you better get it because you're staying with Coach Knight. And uh, Pete Newell, the legendary coach of the 60s, he took Cal to a national championship. Uh, and and a few Final Fours. He coached at San Francisco. He coached at Cal. That was one of Bob's mentors, and we developed a friendship over that week because he stayed there for the entire week too. And Bob looked up to him and used to have him critique his practices uh, and defense Uh, because Pete was known as a defensive coach. And in in the 1960 National Finals of the Elite Eight, he held Oscar Robertson to four for 16 from the field in their win over Cincinnati, who went on after Oscar played there to win a couple of national championships under Ed Jucker. But Bob respected older coaches. And when he came to New York, he would visit with the New York legends of the past that I grew up reading about, like Claire B. and Nat Holman and Lou Rossini, guys that had coached in New York and brought teams to NIT championships. And Bob had a real love for the NIT because he coached at Army. Uh, where I played against them as a UConn player. We played in my junior year and my senior year. In my senior year, uh, there was a guy named Mike Krzyzewski guarding me and me guarding him. Uh, And Mike and I have been friends since then. But Bob was a great coach and brought his West Point teams to the NIT and came within a a bucket of getting to the finals Uh, in one year when I was a high school coach, I think it was like 1970 in that era. uh, He had some great teams at West Point and he loved the NIT. And, you know, he respected the history of it, as did many great coaches, uh, you know, from the 1950s and maybe even going back into the forties. But as a little kid, I'd grown up in the New York area only you know probably 50 miles from Madison Square Garden. I lived in Fairfield County. And I could get all the Knicks games on Madison Square Garden Network on Saturday nights whenever they were playing at home. And I listened to the other games on the radio. I was a real New York Knicks fan at age eight. Uh, back in 1953, I tuned in the games at night and had the radio under my, my blanket covers because my dad didn't want me staying up that late on a school night but I was a real New York Knicks fan before I ever saw a live pro game so anyway bob would come back to New York and the next thing you know uh you know he's he's bringing Nat Holman or or even Claire B who was going blind with um type 2 diabetes uh, he would bring them to the press conferences whenever his team played in New York and and had them sitting on the end of their benches during games. Uh, he respected the older coaches, and he, he said his greatest resources were older coaches and a guy named Red Auerbach. And in my first coaching job at the college level, Uh, at Tufts University, which was about 10 minutes from the Boston Garden, I had an opportunity to meet Red Auerbach. I went to the Celtic practices. Um, I had a teammate at UConn named Toby Kimble, who was a backup center for Bill Russell back when Bill was a player coach. uh, And I used to go to practices then. So I knew Red Auerbach and he was one of my mentors and I certainly consider Bob Knight a mentor. So we we had a great relationship. And even the last job that I had at the collegiate level, back in 2004, I took over at the University of Houston. The athletic director, Dave Maggard, uh, was checking on people that he was interested in. And there was one guy, one coach, who I don't remember who it was, but somebody that Bob Knight knew. uh, And he gave Bob's phone number to Dave Maggard. And he said, you know, would you please call Coach Knight? So Dave did. And Bob asked him, well, who else is involved in this job? And this is Dave Maggard telling me after I took the job. And he mentioned my name and he said, there's your guy. Hire him. Hire him now. And Dave hung up the phone, called me up, and that's how I got the University of Houston job. That's how he was. If you made a friend out of bob Knight uh, you, you know he was loyal uh and he would there's nothing he wouldn't do for his friends
2: yeah that that's that's great to hear because I think the media and the fans had had a different perspective, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you because I know you respect the game you respect coaches, and obviously coach Knight. Respected not only the older coaches but but coaches younger than him like like yourself. So a, as you got into coaching, now you, you're the man. I think one of your one of your reputations that you carry is you were able to turn programs around. Is that fair to say?
0: Yeah, when I was inducted into the Collegiate Basketball Hall of Fame in Kansas City. Uh, they had a two minute video and with audio and that's, they said I was turnaround Tom. <laughs> and, and, uh, and in most cases, that was the case. But at Columbia, you know, I was being approached about writing a book before I took the Columbia job. I turned Columbia from a five and twenty-one team immediately into a four and twenty-two team.
2: <laughs> That's quite a turnaround, Tom.
0: Yeah. And when I went to Fordham, uh they went from uh eight wins to seven wins my first year. So it it wasn't in every every university I took over. Uh those were two downtrodden programs uh that were really, you know without a lot of talent. And in both cases, I really got the job too late to get guys that were, you know, uh, capable of helping us as freshmen. So, um, yeah, the, all the other ones, the other five, we either won championship, which, you know, that doesn't mean much uh, today. It didn't really mean a whole lot then unless it gave you an automatic bid to the NCAA tournament. But you know, to me, as a young coach, and before I ever coached in an NCAA tournament game at the University of Rhode Island in my second year, I had only coached in eight NITs, uh, or seven, I believe, and and then I coached in one more at Rhode Island in my first year. Uh, and no, let me add another one. I got my first win as an NIT coach at the University of Houston. Uh, In my first year uh, as a Cougar head coach. So, yeah, I, you know, a lot of coaches with the get labels. uh, Yeah. Yeah. And and that can work for you. Uh, It can also make it tough for you to stay at that school because usually the same guys that were heading up those programs, the athletic directors, in that era, back in the 70s and 80s, you know, an athletic director had a job for life. And the same people that hired me to save them were still the athletic directors after I saved them, and maybe stayed a few years after that. They were the same people, same administrations as I walked into. Uh, and, and Bob Knight, among others, Al McGuire was another uh, friend of mine and a guy that I respected and learned a lot from. They both said, you've got to get out of there. The same athletic directors there, that means they're not going to spend any more money uh, than they did for the predecessor. They're budget-oriented people, and you've probably taken it as far as you could. Uh, That was the case in my entire career, except for my last job, University of Houston, which I vowed to my family uh, that, you know, I was going to turn this one around. And after we got to an NCAA tournament, I was going to stop coaching. And I did. And I was 65 years old. I always wanted to retire when I had enough health to enjoy retirement and enjoy my family and grandchildren and you know not not coach and die two months later like bear bryant did or a lot of other legendary coaches who had to had to be at practice you know that was their rick mcgeras who was a close very close friend we were like brothers and rick rick was supposed to to meet me he had a girlfriend in boston and I was living in, in Narragansett, Rhode Island at the time, and Rick loved the ocean and he wanted to come and, and body surf that summer. That body? Yep. Yeah. I mean we had we were with the same shoe company, Reebok, yeah. when Reebok first started and all the way through, and he was at the University of Utah, I believe, when uh when he started there. And we we played against each other and had a lot of fun. And he didn't mind playing me, uh, and I didn't mind playing against him because I usually learned something. And he would give me his scouting report on us after the game, and I'd do the same thing for him. And during the NCAA tournaments, you know, I would call him if we played this certain team that he was going to face, and and give him my opinion of how to beat them and where their weaknesses were. And he'd do the same to me. Um, you know, I miss him, and I wish he he was still with us because he was young at heart, yeah. and he was a unique person. And a, like Bob Knight, a lot of people didn't know how friendly he was and how uh, respectful and loyal he was to coaches that, that he had relationships with.
2: He was at my, my alma mater, St. Louis University, was his last yep. year. Yeah, that's well, right. Let, let, let me ask you this. I would think, and I didn't see your teams at Fordham or Mark Columbia, but but the up-tempo you had at, at Houston and at Texas, was, was there a transition when, when you said, and I'm sure it had to do with the athletes you had available to you as players when you, when you developed and, and coached that style?
0: Well, my first job at Tufts University, uh, my first year, we had to be conservative to be competitive. And we we uh, had a team that won one game the year before, and I couldn't play freshman. So uh, we were 12 and 8. We only played 20 games in that particular conference that year. And I had to play a much different game, but I had a college coach who was way ahead of his time. He was an assistant coach at Duke. And when I was a freshman at UConn, he came in. I was part of his first recruited class. Uh, and he only coached four years. His first year, his name was Fred Schabel. And Fred was a guy who taught multiple defenses. He liked the full court press Uh, against teams that were very athletic and maybe better than we were, he'd still press just to try to contain and stop the other team from initiating its offense. There was no shot clock. And and then when we played, you know, uh, Boston College with Bob Cousy, they were, you know, I think they lost a total of uh, uh, six games in his last three years. Bob had some great, great teams he would try to control the tempo and he had an offense and it usually involved me with the ball for about 38 minutes. It seemed like uh, just to, to, wear down the clock. And they had different rules back then that hash mark you see on the sideline, yeah, you had to break that plane and then come back out and the count started all over again. And I was real quick and I had a pretty good handle. If teams came out to guard me, I could go around them. And then it was up to me as to whether we went for the layup, the lob dunk, or or uh, the shot. Uh, I have a high-scoring backcourt mate who averaged 30 points a game in his senior year uh, named Wes Balasugnia. Wes was a high draft pick in the ABA and decided to go with the Oakland Oaks after a... We finished college. Wes had no limit on his range. He he was, he was more effective from NBA range than he was from what is now the collegiate line or what it was when they first came out with it. Um, Rick Berry and was a teammate of his, and a number of other ABA guys that I got to know, said there were two lines in the ABA. There was the three-point line, and then. Beyond that was the Balosugnia line. And he was one of the leading three-point shooters uh, that year in 1967-68. But he was my backcourt mate. And, and Coach would slow it down in certain games. And that was an offense where I had to dribble a lot and, and uh, make decisions. And the other one was run. And we ran. We ran a great fast break. We look for the shot early in the transition. Uh, and, you know, we averaged my first year, we averaged 85 plus points a game. That was my sophomore year in 1965, 64, 65. Uh, we averaged 85 points and gave up 65. Uh, we were 23 and two, and our only two losses came when we had Toby Kimball out of the lineup for. He had some kind of chest spasms, and they were worried it might be a heart condition or a heart ailment. Uh, it wasn't. It was just uh, spasms in the chest. We lost two out of three games that he missed. Uh, we 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 could have been easily one of the undefeated regular season teams in in NCAA history if Toby was healthy. He was he was an animal. He averaged twenty points and twenty one rebounds. And, and he had hands like any great pro center and he backed up uh Bill Russell and Lou Alcindor in his first two pro jobs. He was the backup center. He played for uh the Celtics, the Milwaukee Bucks, um the 76ers and he ended up with the San Diego Rockets which became the Houston Rockets uh back in 1970 Four or five, I think was his last year out in San Diego, where he retired and lived out there in La Jolla, California. But my coach was way ahead of his time. And it was all about preparation, whoever we were playing. So my first year at Tufts, we didn't we didn't run very much, but we we were the most improved team in New England that year. And then the next year we were Again, the most improved team in New England we won twenty two and lost four. We ran and we pressed everybody we played and we played one of our biggest rivals was jim calhoun's northeastern team they, they were they called them university division then it wasn't Division one, two, and three. We were college division, but we weren't allowed to play in national tournaments. It was a conference rule that They were trying to outdo the Ivy League. We were the Little Ivy League. Uh, It was called the New England Small College Athletic Conference. And the rules were that nobody could play for national uh, championships. Uh, They never gave me a good reason for it. But it ended up being the reason why I left there uh, after three years and, and took the Columbia job who, you know, they were at the bottom of the Ivy League. And people say, well, Ivy League, they couldn't have been... Very... Well, if you look back at the 60s and 70s, the Ivy League was one of the premier conferences in the East, certainly. Uh, when I was in college, you had Bill Bradley and Princeton going to the Final Four and and coming close a couple of other times. Uh, uh, Butch Van Bredekhoff was their coach. And... And then in the seventies, we were we were just as good as Penn when I left and went to Fordham. I left a really good team behind, and my assistant took over. Uh and and they had an injury late in the season. They were tied all year with Penn. Well, Penn made the final four that year. Everybody talks about the Larry Bird, Magic Johnson matchup during that final four. A lot of teams don't know who the other two teams were. Well, it was DePaul with Mark Aguirre and the great Ray Meyer, their coach, yeah. legendary coach, and Penn. They were the other team. And, you know, I felt that I left Columbia championship-level team. And the Ivy League was very strong back then because the Big East hadn't started yet. Um, you know, there the, there weren't many leagues conferences back then. You had the ECAC, Eastern Collegiate Athletic Conference, and they governed college basketball from Maine all the way down to Washington, D.C. And they had their little uh, pieces of the pie in terms of NCAA bids. Uh, but then everybody started forming conferences after Dave Gavitt put the Big East together. Uh, I was at Fordham at the time, and Jim Valvano was at at Iona. He had a top twenty five team, and we had we had to do something. Mike Shashovsky was at Army, and the three of us really got together and talked about forming a conference. And you know, we were able to get teams from Philadelphia and New Jersey and whatever, and we formed the MAC, which is the Metro Atlantic Athletic Conference which is still it produced St. Peters that almost got to a final four 2 years ago uh but we had some outstanding teams at Fordham that probably should have been in the NCAA but we only had one bid and in our second year we won the conference championship but we didn't get an automatic bid there were only I believe 52 teams in the NCAA tournament back then so that was nineteen eighty so anyway, um, that's a long answer to your question, but I've been to a lot of places, <laughs> and for the most part, I was able to get it turned around in the first year
2: let let, let me let me uh look look forward with you then that's uh, you talked early on about teammates and family and what have you. It's a different game now with the one-and-done situation. I would bet if you were coaching today, that'd
0: drive you crazy. It would. And uh, I never had a one-and-done player or even a player that talked about it. I got my first McDonald's All-American, I believe it was 1996. I was Chris Clack, who was an outstanding player, high second-round pick by the Boston Celtics. He was like the 31st player picked that year. Um, but, you know, he played a couple of years for Rick Barnes after I left. But as a freshman, he helped us get to a sweet 16. He and Reggie Freeman played together. But I I didn't like recruiting kids who thought that way because I really believed, and I still do to this day, some of the greatest experiences in my life and still are uh, going back. are my four years at UConn, you know, where Mm -hmm. I was literally, I was the captain of two teams or the leader in basketball. We didn't actually have a, I was the every game captain, the guy who could speak to the referees and my coach called me the quarterback. Uh, But baseball, I I was one of the captains there. Uh, But those guys are all my friends and I'm still, I'm still loved and cheered by UConn fans when I go back there. And my nephew, Jimmy, uh, that's my older brother's, my older brother, Jim, and I played the College World Series together in 1965, uh, which was one of the greatest experiences of my life. And his son, Jimmy, his oldest boy, has done an amazing job with the UConn Husky baseball program. Some of his pro guys is a guy named George Springer that you might have heard about.
2: Yeah, not a bad player.
0: No, not a bad one. But nobody heard about him until he played at UConn for my nephew. He's a he's a great teacher coach, the kind of guy you'd want your son to play for. Uh, the way he coaches and the way he teaches, and you know, he he just uh, he he touches all the bases. And you know, now UConn built him a new stadium right in the middle of campus where uh, students can get to and um, boy UConn baseball is one of the top 10 programs annually now they finished the season he said it was a so-so year before they played a game they ended up as the ninth ranked team Uh, the team that knocked them off was Florida that reached the finals And lost that wild game or in that wild series with LSU, um, where both teams ran out of pitchers, and balls were going out of Omaha like crazy. (laughs) But anyway, uh, you know, I wanted every kid to feel the same way about the school they picked as I did about my school, and I talked to them about that and how important graduating was and. Every player that ever played for me, I guaranteed a lifetime scholarship. Uh, before it was even an NCAA rules to do it. So if I broke an NCAA rule, it was raising money for them to finish up after they played professionally in Europe or wherever they were, or maybe they got married and and couldn't finish up school, but wanted to after their kids uh, were were raised. So. Um, you know, I, I was against it. Uh, I still think it's wrong. I think, okay, you want to do it with a kid out of high school who, who doesn't have dreams of playing college basketball and getting a degree. Uh, they should go back to that. The best era of college basketball, without question, was like the mid-80s uh, right up to 2000. And then everything changed. I mean, I coached against Shaquille O'Neal for three straight years.
2: I remember that game in the Sun Bowl Classic. When,
0: yeah, when you, you,
2: your, your Texas team fell behind by more than twenty points or whatever, mm-hmm. and and your guys put a rally on, and and LSU held on and won by a point. Yeah. and their coach Dale Brown went goofy after the game, yelling at his team.
0: That was in the That was in the Superdome. That was in the Superdome, I believe. We had a couple of thrillers with them. And no, the right
2: the one I was talking about was in El Paso.
0: Well, that might have been against the bear, Don Haskins. Um, he had a 28-point lead on us. All right, yeah, you're right. You're and, got, right. and got conservative, which he never did, uh, and started to spread the floor and milk out the clock. And um, Anyway, we caught him. And, of course, the game being out there, we didn't get many calls from the officials. No. So we lost to him by one but beat him by ten. <laughs> but Chris Jackson was on that team, who became Abdul um uh, later on, Stanley Roberts. Uh, LSU had some great teams. and And Dale Brown is another friend, a guy who was an older coach that I – I absolutely loved as a person, and I still am in touch with him. Dale was kind enough to start a series with Texas where he had everything to lose and very little to gain. And we played them four places. We played in in Baton Rouge. We played in the in Superdome. And we played them in San Antonio before we got a game with them Up in Austin. And unfortunately, he was no longer the coach. It was the gentleman that that, uh, took LSU to the finals. Um, I can't remember his name right now. He wasn't at LSU all that long, but he did bring him to one final four. Anyway, a lot of coaches like Lou Dolson is another older guy that I looked up to and had a great relationship. With and I used to sit with at the Final Four when his team wasn't in it, he agreed to play my Texas team. So we went from my first year at Texas, it uh, was one of the weakest non league schedules that I ever coached. Uh, I didn't make that schedule up, but then the following year, we were in the top five non league schedules. We played everybody and anybody, anywhere, anytime. Uh we weren't afraid of anybody. And that's how we we developed interest in our program, not just not just in Austin, but all over the state of Texas, uh, where football was king. It's still it's still king, but it's like uh fifty one, forty nine percent. Uh high school basketball in Texas started growing rapidly, uh, with the you know, the running horns as we were known. Uh, we, we ran. We established. We established that my first year we averaged uh, close to 95 points a game. We won 25. We we upset a very good Georgia Tech team, Bobby Kremen's coaching, and then we lost to Norm Stewart's Missouri team in the second round. Then the next year we got the Elite Eight, but we ran right off the bat because I felt I had the the guards. And the depth of guard to, to you know to, to develop a pace, and we also had the shot clock and yeah. we took advantage of that i believed I believed in in getting the shot off in the first ten seconds, you get a better shot than you will if you wait and hold it until five seconds are left on the shot clock and I don't care if you watch an n b a game or a college game when the possession gets late in the shot clock. Uh, The shooting goes from 45% to 30% in those last five seconds. I don't think you can play and win that way unless the defense is soft and they let you do it.
2: I can't let you get away without touching on two quick items. Your baseball career, your pro baseball career, and your association with the
0: New York Yankees. Okay. I was... In high school I was a you know I was scouts at every game. My dad was a legendary high school coach and you know I think I hit like 450 in my junior year so everybody was there to see me play. I pitched and played shortstop uh when I wasn't pitching and uh I batted third. So I had a lot of scouts talking to me about signing out of high school. But my dad said, no way, you're going to college. And my older brother was at UConn. So I was being recruited by a bunch of schools to play just baseball, like Arizona State with Bobby Winkles as, as their... Was a great friend of mine. Good man. Good, good man. man. Miss him. And Rick Monday and, and Reggie Jackson and Sal Bando were guys that he had during my time at UConn. Uh, I decided on UConn because I could play both sports. Baseball didn't start until the snow was off the ground, and that was usually April. So I was able to combine the two easily and and not miss but a couple of games one year. But I, I it was 1967 when I, when I could have signed. But I had a couple of courses I had to make up from getting sick with mononucleosis in my junior year, and I had to drop a couple of courses and miss miss about half the baseball season. I had a really bad case of it. So I came back in the fall, and I got drafted by Cleveland in the ninth round, but I didn't sign a contract with them until January of 68. That was my rookie year. And I played, uh, I was assigned to play in the Western Carolina League uh, with the Cleveland A-level team. I made the all-star team as a third baseman, which I had never played. I was a center fielder in college. When I got to spring training, um, a couple of minor league managers were there. And they called out my name when we had our first meeting. And they told me, uh, you're playing third base from now on. So, I learned how to play third base in spring training a little bit, and I made the all star team. And around the middle of uh, July, I was elevated to the double A Eastern League, where I played uh, with a very well known catcher named Fran Healy, who now does television uh, documentaries, you know, people from all different sports, kind of like your version, uh, what you're doing. And and Fran was a great guy and a a fun guy to be with. And I played against uh, Thurman Munson from the Yankees. I faced Al Downing, who was on that team. You know, these are all things you can Google. Al Downing was uh, working his way back to the major leagues. He had got set down by the Yankees, and he was playing for Binghamton, and then the Orioles. Managed by Cal Ripken Sr. and Cal Ripken Jr. was the bat boy. Uh, the Elmira Orioles—they had a pitcher named Jim Palmer, uh, and I faced him twice. And all I can tell you is, his fastball started over my head and ended up at my knees. I mean, his his curve his curveball. I'm sorry. To six. His fastball. I didn't really see it, but I could hear it. You know, I, I could hear it, that buzzing sound and then when it hit the catcher's mitt uh he was a big guy with that high leg kick and oh, I didn't yeah. know where in the world the ball was coming from and he was a great 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 talent and a bunch of other guys that played in the major league the double-a eastern league was the hardest uh it was the oldest pitchers in, in organized baseball were in that league a lot of guys who pitched in the majors and were trying to work their way back. They went right from the double-A roster into the major leagues. They would go back and forth. That was our league. And uh, the Phillies with Frank Lucchese as the manager, oh, yeah. they had a bunch of guys that were going up and down, and Larry Boa was on that team, and Denny Doyle. That was their double-play combination. It, you know, I could go on and on with that, but a lot of people don't know that I played baseball, and then I was offered a high school coaching job in the off season, and uh, a job the following spring with a company uh, that was in my hometown of Stratford. They had the best fast pitch softball organization in the country, and in those days, fast pitch—excuse pitch, me, fast pitch softball was a very big sport in a lot of towns up in the east midwest all throughout the country and if you watch the women's game uh, just imagine guys six nine pitching from a couple of feet beyond where the women pitch from basically little league distance throw over 100 miles an hour you know it was it was not unusual. We had three guys that threw over a hundred on our pitching staff, we played a hundred games. Uh, my first year, we went ninety-one and nine and won the national championship. And then in my my last year, I was able to play in in world uh, the world games of fast pitch softball. I wasn't able to because of my pro baseball years. They changed the rules just like they did for the dream team in basketball. And I played and represented the US in the world games in fast pitch softball. So I played, I, I stopped playing baseball uh, and took a high school coaching job. And, and while I was at Tufts University and Columbia University, I continued to play in the summer, although I had to miss some games uh, because of recruiting, but. You know, I I loved it. And in 2016, I was inducted into the uh, USA Fast Pitch Hall of Fame, which is in Oklahoma City. So I had a lot of careers. I was one of those multitaskers. My mom used to say, if, if she couldn't see me, she knew I was busy doing something. And 50% of the time, it was something she wouldn't approve of. <laughs> Dave's got a
2: question for you.
0: Okay, Dave. Yeah, well, we we talked pre-show about
1: a number of uh, people that have been on the show, and you named Larry Bow has been on the show a couple times as well. And but I have, and I, and again, this is you kind of think you prepare for a show, but you find out some something during during the show. One of my favorite baseball guys, you know, we talk about sense of reverence for people who have been around and have done it. But one of my favorite baseball guys to talk to. Was one of your teammates at UConn. And he and I actually do a show together on this podcast. And I wanted to ask you about him, Bob Schaefer.
0: Oh, Bobby Schaefer. We all called He's him the rookie. He ever had. We called him rookie uh, before I. He was a year ahead of me. He was the shortstop on that 1965 college World Series team. And we were fraternity brothers, we lived on the same floor. It was a baseball fraternity that my brother had joined. I wasn't a frat guy, but I joined because my baseball teammates were in there, and my older brother, who I room with. But I just talked to to a rookie a few weeks ago. Uh, he sent me a he's sending me a manuscript of his book, and I, I wrote a book called Dead Coach Walking that I sent him. Uh, you know. <laughs> Bobby Schaefer was one heck of a shortstop, and he had pop in his bat. Uh, he had a lot of home runs. Uh, in my junior year, we had a great team, but we didn't. We didn't get to the tournament because we were tied with with uh, Maine and UMass for the lead. And the conference had a stupid rule: instead of having a playoff, if you played in the College World Series the year before, it was a rule, then you would. If you were tied, you were not going to be involved in the in the next year. In uh, our last win of the season, I, I believe we were we didn't play a ton of games. I think we were twenty one and four, uh, but we were tied for first place in the Yankee Conference. Uh, we beat UMass twenty to one in our last regular season game. Bob had nine home runs in in like twenty six games or twenty five games. And he was a great shortstop and a funny guy, a guy that could always crack you up. I was the guy that was always positive. He was the guy who threw helmets when he struck out. (laughs) So I'd try to cheer him up or make him laugh. and, And he'd try to tell me to buckle down and be serious. You know, that's how he was. And I'm not surprised that he's still affiliated and still scouting in baseball. He's a, Kind of a neighbor he's over in Fort Myers and I'm in Miami Beach right now yeah he
1: is uh I have the same manuscript he sent you i'm halfway through, so I won't tell you how it turns out.
0: all right, I hope I'm not mentioned it there because it'll probably kill me
1: oh he he speaks very highly of you he's been texting me throughout the show and he actually called i couldn't answer, so now he's texting me he's, uh, he's He thinks I'm avoiding him, so I let him know I'm on with you right now
0: uh, all right,
2: hey Tom did
0: my
1: love? I will.
2: I thank you for the time. It's great catching up with you. And I, I, I hope, uh, you know, the health stays good. And uh, tell Susie thanks for her help getting you on, on the show uh, this, this week. And wish you folks nothing but the best.
0: Well, thanks for thinking of me. And, and, Jerry, you were the best I ever had at Texas. You were the best play-by-play guy and a, a guy I knew and respected before you even got that job. Uh, I put in a word or two for you when we were looking for somebody to replace somebody. So, anyway, I'm glad that you still think of me. on. always will. We'll do it again, okay? You got, you got, you got so much uh,
2: information and so many stories. We'll have to do it again.
0: And I still remember him. Atta boy, Atta boy. <laughs> Thanks. All right. Thanks, Dave and, and Jerry.
1: Oh, no worries. And hang on with us for a second, Coach. We'll uh, we're gonna just thank our two groups and and then uh we'll we'll be out of here for you. But thank you so much, Coach, for spending time with us. Jerry, another wonderful interview. You're the best in the business. Um I sit sometimes and I, I, I take notes as you're asking questions. I get better with my other podcasts because I get to listen to you and be with you once a week. So I appreciate what you do for our network as well. But
2: I yeah, appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Th- and thank you to our fans, fifty five thousand and growing, seventy four countries. So we're global, I guess, if you can call us that. Um, we appreciate your support. Give this show five stars. Write some nice comments as we battle the analytics of the podcast world, just like they do in baseball. Uh, we're now a major player on iHeartRadio's podcast network. Let's keep us there. Keep us climbing. And thank you to our first, uh, the first sponsor we allowed to join us, which was Blackout Coffee. Their slogan is Be Awake, Not Woke. Uh, our, our listeners, if you Log in to Blackout Coffee and you order your coffee online. The first order you do is 20% off if you use David, D-A-V-I-D, all capital with the number 20 after it. They'll give you 20% off and then you'll be registered to get 15% off for the rest of your life. So that's a fantastic partnership we have. They liked our vibe, Jerry, so we're going to hang with them. Um,
2: that's great. Good news. Congratulations.
1: Well, that's all of us. All great work by our podcast hosts. And uh, With that, episode 340, Real Voice of the Game, on the record with Jerry Truppiano, we had a Pleasure of having Hall of Famer Coach Tom Penders. Coach, thanks again.
0: You're very welcome, guys. Thank you. I wish politicians look out for
2: miners, not just miners on an island somewhere. Lord,
0: we got folks in the street, ain't got nothing to eat. Welfare.